Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Always it's lovely to have you with me as we travel through space and time together. Who would want to make a journey like this alone? Before we get started on today's journey, I want to say the usual big thanks to everyone who supports the making of this podcast series by joining my patreon.com site. It's by signing up there, becoming a member, that you get exclusive content, the question and answers sessions where we contemplate questions relating to everything, history, archaeology, current affairs, travel. Also amongst the exclusive content, competitions. But more than anything else, you get you well, you get early access to my weekly monologues, and really it's about being part of a, a community of like-minded people. So if you're not a member and you'd like to join, just go to patreon.com, part with a bit of cash. Uh, you can pay monthly or annually, and it's cheaper if you join up for the whole year. In any event, it's that contribution, it's those contributions that make it possible for Paul and I to do everything else. Uh, and it would be great to see you there and to welcome you as part of the family. Okay, that's the advert over. It's now time to strap into the time machine and set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. An ominous spectre is haunting Europe. Right across the continent, from Paris to Milan, from Budapest to Berlin, voices are ringing out, calling for change. In 1848, a portentous document that strikes fear into the hearts of Europe's ruling classes is published anonymously. Composed in German, printed in London and just 23 pages long, it calls for the proletariat to rise up, overthrow their oppressors and bring about worldwide revolution. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. Last week we travelled with you to Paris in 1838 as the world began to see itself in all its horror and glory. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Yes, last week we met Joseph Niepce and Louis Daguerre in France as they collaborated and the invention of photography. This week we're crossing the channel, travelling to the city of London in England. It's 1848 and a document that Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels collaborated upon is being published at 46 Liverpool Street in Bishopsgate. The document came to be known as the Communist Manifesto and it sends seismic shock around the world. Hi Paul, hi fellow time travellers, wherever and whenever you are. Um, this is the, the love letter to the world and I must admit I find it sometimes incongruous the things I'm talking about sometimes in the context of a love letter to the world. Uh, and today's one of those. It's, it's about the Communist Manifesto, which I would say, well, 
it ain't no love letter in that the consequences of communist revolution, wherever it has taken place, has always and only been a horror show. Communism has led to death on a monumental, shaming scale, and still it goes on. Where are we? It was published in London, Communist Manifesto, and uh, when, when are we? Well, 1848, the February of... Obviously, it was authored by Karl Marx and by his collaborator and sponsor, Friedrich Engels. Two German guys. Marx was 29, Engels was 28. Uh, a, a symbiotic relationship between the two would-be revolutionaries. It's gone down in history as the Communist Manifesto, but it was actually published as the Manifesto of the Communist Party to give it its Sunday name. Uh, it was published in 1848 and it printed in... Uh, for those who want to be precise about all of this, at number 42 Liverpool Street in Bishopsgate in London. In its original form, if anyone ever sees one, it has a dark green cover on it. It runs to 23 pages. It was originally published, written in German. Marx himself said at the time of publication in 1848 that a spectre was haunting Europe. And the spectre to which he was referring was communism. He said, all the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this spectre. And so they had. By 1848, believe it or believe it not, the aftershocks of the French Revolution in 1789 were still very much rumbling around. Like the rumbling thunder after most of a storm has passed. I've visualised it a bit like um, a bit like a hernia <laughs> where a, a hernia it, you know, bulges out through the muscle wall in a place of strain where a person has had a, has a strain and a, maybe a, a slight uh, tear or a, or a parting of the muscle wall something of the, of the soft tissue behind protrudes through and it's like a pain-filled tendency towards revolution. And it was bulging in one place after another, and even in some, in some cases displacing old ways of being governed in terms of the, the old established conservative regimes of Europe. But it never quite erupted into something all-encompassing. It was just, you know, pressure and pain and a and a bulge here and there. But the strain was partly being caused by the spectre of communism. There was pressure on the old regimes, uh, the old ways, the monarchies and the, and the old conservative ways of running Europe were coming under increasing pressure from populations, more and more of which were demanding something better a better way of life. And it meant that, and it was counterproductive, but during the 19th century, the state uh, assumed more and more power over citizens. In one country of Europe after another, the state's reaction to the spectre, the looming spectre of communism, was to, 
was to stamp down and clamp down on it. It was a self-perpetuating pressure building, like a pressure cooker. Also as part of the, the, the necessary backstory, it's worth pointing out that the French Revolution, 1789, keeps rumbling on. There's one iteration after another of the French Republic, always a falling foul of corruption of one sort or another. Then you get the rise of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars, which culminate, come to an end in 1815 at Waterloo. But by the Congress, or it's also known as the Treaty of Vienna, old Europe, in response to everything that Napoleon had stood for and had done, there was this attempt to have a permanent peace for Europe. Now, admittedly, a peace that suited the, the wants and appetites of the old regimes more than the populations thereof. However, there was this uh, pressure, this push for a permanent peace. The Treaty of Vienna, or the Congress of Vienna, was supposed to settle all the grudges left over from the French Revolution and then the Napoleonic period that, that was its successor. That effort, that, that peace, that treaty, held for four decades, 40 years or so, and it operated as a kind of a, a scaffolding that continued to hold up and support. And it meant that all through that period, communism, the spectre, and, the, and its travelling companion revolution were also held at bay. Well, the, the authorities, the, the conservative regimes didn't want any more revolution. They had seen what had happened in France and they, they wanted none of it. Um, revolution became... And for many people, still is a dirty word. I have invoked it in weeks and months past in relation to the oppressive state that we have now. I have almost tongue-in-cheek called for revolution. I don't mean pitchforks and torches and guillotines. I just mean radical change, but that can be without violence. But it's still the case that when you invoke revolution... For, for many people, it still instantly takes people back to the, to, to the French Revolution and to the violence and the terror that followed it. But it's worth always paying attention to the fact that during that first half of the 19th century, wherever the hernia of revolution, proto-revolution bulged, people, ordinary, decent, put-upon working people, we're, we're asking for things that we value today. You know, there were calls for representative government, for democracy, for the freedom of the individual, for a free press. So a lot, a, a lot of those honest and decent desires were, were also within that rumbling appetite for and or demand for change. So, you know, that's the, that's the backstory, and it, it is the case that by 1848, the continent of Europe was on the verge of, well, whatever, a conflagration, an all-consuming fire. It nearly, it nearly happened, and everyone knew, those in favour and those against, that if that fire was to catch, that it could, probably would, incinerate the peace of 1815 that had lasted for as long as it had. So bearing in mind that the Communist Manifesto was published in February of 1848, uh, it was published anonymous, actually. Um, it was published by the Workers' Education Association. So M Marx and Engels hadn't put their names to it. 
But by the summer of that same year, every, really every city in Europe, there was rising political heat at building. Something was building. People could see it. Paris, Milan, Venice, Vienna, Prague, Budapest, Krakow, Munich, Berlin. And by that, by that summer of 1848, the manifesto was circulating as well. As early as 1847, Marx had put the name of the Communist League on the, on the movement on the general movement that was that was shaping up across Europe. And by 1847, the Communist League had taken root in France, in Germany, and in Switzerland. All the ingredients were there. So in that document, in that manifesto, Marx famously had said that the workers of the world should unite. It was up to the workers to come together. The conclusion of the manifesto, what the, what the manifesto was about was that socialism, there's another key word, socialism, according to Marx, was inevitable. You know, he wasn't just he wasn't just suggesting that it might happen if people did X, Y, and Z. It was Marx's central point that socialism was the inevitable consequence of industrialization. That that it had to happen, that it was unavoidable. That it was, it was where, it was almost where the universe wanted to go. That was his contention. That it was just going to happen. It's going to happen anyway. It has to happen because of the, because of the direction of travel. He borrowed, he acquired the word proletariat, which everyone associates with Karl Marx. He borrowed that or he pinched it from a Swiss economist called Jean-Charles Leonard de Sismondi. And he, but he took it for his own proletariat. And it was his prophecy, it was Marx's prophecy that the proletariat would rise up inevitably, had to happen, and that they would overthrow the oppressor class. And Marx coined the term the bourgeoisie for this oppressive class, by which he meant that narrow elite that owned everything and owned all the means of production and all the means of generating capital, like money, wealth, so he said that the, the proletariat would rise up and seize from the bourgeoisie ownership of and the, and, the, and the means to produce all the things that were needed and wanted. You have to give the devil his due and say that there was there was genius at play with Marx, and it, and if there was genius, it was the genius of prophecy, which is another way of saying that the Communist Manifesto was ahead of its time. He got in too early. Really, that was his undoing. Because by 1848, industrialization was happening, but it hadn't reached the all-encompassing level or, or penetration necessary, if you like, to, to dehumanize and so oppress the proletariat that they would feel no option but to rise. It hadn't happened yet. Not in, not in France, not in Germany, not in England, or anywhere else. By that middle point in the 19th century, the skilled artisans and craftsmen still held sway. And they were still in a position to fight for, and they believed in the perpetuation of their way of life. 
un- unfortunately, really, in terms of timing, unfortunately for Karl Marx, the necessary pressure, that breaking point had not been reached. People had been industrialised and there, there were factories, but it hadn't, it hadn't reached the pitch where enough people were feeling sufficiently miserable and oppressed to need to rise up and have a crush the factory system or take control of it. The cogs and wheels, mindlessly turnings, simply weren't there in sufficient numbers to create enough of the heat that Marx and Engels needed to bring about the, the fruition of their prophecy. So they were ahead of their time, and I would say that they were seeing all the way to our time, as it happens. I think, you know, we don't fret about being taken over by steam engines, or, or indeed, you know, by by traditional factory life and, and machinery. We fear big tech, and we fear artificial intelligence. And you've talked about this in relation to the Luddites, I would say it's now in the 21st century that the loss of control and the the oppression that Marx and Engels prophesied and would have taken advantage of, it's coming at our lives and it's and it's penetrating our lives every at every level. It's also worth noticing that Karl Marx was a flawed human being. It's always worth paying attention to, you know, when you get these, these characters that, that, that emerge who want to change the world, it's always worth looking at how they live their lives and what they actually do. Because it, it's, it's almost invariably the case that the people that step up and say that they want to change the world, they do that to distract themselves and everyone else from the mess of their own existence. You know, they, they, they haven't got the wherewithal to make their bed and do the dishes and, you know, and cut their own grass. But at the same time, they think that they can fix the world on behalf of 8 billion people. There's a strange correlation between that blindness about their own reality and and, and what, what they think they can bring to the wider world. Friedrich Engels, who's Marx's friend, he was rich. He was the heir, the son and heir of a, a Manchester-based milling fortune. So he was independently wealthy. And... Marx was a malcontent. You know, Marx Marx liked the good life. He liked fine wine and rich food and cigars, uh, but he couldn't afford it. Life had shown him that he couldn't raise the necessary wherewithal to fund the kind of life that he wanted. And so there was a kind of a, a bitterness at the heart of him that he was motivated to shake up the world because he was so dissatisfied with his own lot. And you know, famously, his wife, Jenny von Westphalen, she said words to the effect of that their lives would have been a lot better if Karl had spent more time earning capital than just writing about it. He fathered a child, Karl Marx, by the maid, <laughs> by the housekeeper, a woman called Hélène de Muth, and the child, a little boy, Friedrich. Marx disowned him. Marx disowned that child and he left it to Engels to raise him, to raise him as his own. This is what you're dealing with. Talk about the exploitation of the workers. Look at what he did directly to his employee, Ellen DeMuth. So you're dealing with these flawed individuals, but it's a symbiotic relationship. You know, Marx, because he couldn't earn his own money, he leached from everyone around him. He, he, He borrowed and didn't repay his own family. He borrowed from and didn't repay his wife's family, um, he borrowed and leached off Engels in order to keep himself going. So there's 
there's that unavoidable aspect to his character. And I mean, you also, you also have to ask yourself, did Marx and Engels, did they desire the bloodshed that lay ahead with revolution? Did they see violent overthrow as the necessary birth pains for the delivery of a brave new world? It's very difficult to tell just how much of what lay ahead on account of the Communist Manifesto was what they desired and how much was just unintended consequences. You know, I mean, Marx wrote, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionising the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. Constant revolutionising of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real condition of life and his relations with his kind. I mean, Marx had a, had a real gift for the polemic. Fire and brimstone is part of what he was about. But even still, it's hard to distill from that whether or not he was prepared to contemplate the wholesale slaughter that would be the result. You know, communism in Russia, communism in China, communism in Cambodia, always it has failed and always it has created a mountain of slain. Carnage is what communism has always delivered. And people always say, oh, well, that's because they haven't done communism properly yet. But I would say that is a, I think it's a fool's errand. Because I think contrary to Marx's conviction that socialism was inevitable, that the human species would get there in the end, I say quite the contrary. I think everything about socialism and communism actually runs counter to the human spirit and is anti-human, ultimately, despite what it might profess. Anyway, there we are. The creation of the Communist Manifesto undoubtedly changed the world. It inspired wholesale change. It set a fire or it became a weather system that rumbles around the globe to this day. But you always have to look back at the people who create it. Look back at what Karl Marx was. You know, consider his own life and ask yourself if his contribution to the story of the world was good or bad. The worst wound a society can inflict upon itself. Just 85 years after the Declaration of Independence, the United States begins ripping itself apart. The Battle of Antietam is perhaps the bloodiest day in American history, with 22,654 Americans left injured, dead or dying, families, friends and neighbours facing each other in truly a most uncivil war. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for this complicated time of ours. The address is neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. 
My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 